Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights. It's produced in partnership with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, which is a group of companies from the tech and biotech and other sectors, as well as academic institutions and nonprofits, all committed to improving the healthcare of people around the world. You can find out more about them at their website, www.bayareaglobalhealth.org. Well, in this episode, I am honoured to be meeting Dr. Kimberly Smith, who is the Head of Research and Development at Vive Healthcare. Dr. Smith, welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. Thank you for having me. So, dive right in. Uh, you're a physician by training, yes? You, are, you were trained and born in Michigan? I was uh, born in Detroit, Michigan, yes, and I went to the University of Michigan for all of my schooling. What got you interested in medicine? You know, from the time I was a child, I was curious about medicine. Um, you know, I was I was the kid that when you went fishing, I, you know, would dissect the frog and dissect the fish. And I needed to, you know, understand it. And so, you know, I, I can't even think of one particular thing uh, that, that drew me to, to, to medicine. But, you know, I, I guess I always had that sort of how can I help people? And, you know, I, I just loved biology and. So all of those things, you know, came together to, uh, to to lead me to medicine. There was no family connection. No one in my family was a physician or anything like that. And then you went on to practice medicine in Chicago and would be really keen to know what your, what your uh, experience was like working in such a fast-paced and diverse community. Well, that's all I'd really ever known, having grown up in Detroit. Um, you know, Chicago was obviously a big big city, big urban city, many of the typical urban challenges. Um, but I was a political person from the time that I was in college. And, you know, I, I wanted to be in a setting where I would be impacting, you know, communities that I connected to. And so that's primarily the African-American community. And then in 2013, you joined Vive Healthcare and, uh, um, really interested to know what your thoughts were about uh, uh, coming over to join the pharmaceutical industry. You know, um, I spent 20 years in Chicago um, with my training and and really focused on HIV and ultimately as doing HIV research. And so that was my passion. And Vive was a unique opportunity. Uh, it was very different than any other pharmaceutical company because it was uniquely focused on HIV. Um, the head of R&D at the time, uh, uh, John Pottage, was a, a longtime mentor and friend. And, uh, you know, he basically sort of knocked on my door. We talked about it. And even though I'd never imagined myself going into industry, when I talked to John about it, I trusted him uh, enough that, you know, I, I believed that there was an opportunity for me to do something make the next step in my career and impact people in a different way. And so it's all history from there. Uh, well, of, of course, I have a similar history in that I did the same thing, I guess, about, gosh, 25 years ago, um, having been an, an advocate and activist at the UK Terence Higgins Trust, I uh, came on over to what, uh, to a predecessor of VIF, Glaxo Welcome, um, and, uh, and and always felt that it was 
um, you know, we're all in this together and, mm -hmm. and we all have the, we all have different things to contribute, but ultimately, mm -hmm. particularly with HIV, we're fighting a unique threat to, um, to human society and security. And yeah, I just felt that it was a, it, it was, it was an opportunity to, to, to do something different. Well, here we are at AIDS 2020, virtual mm -hmm. AIDS 2020, not at all what we imagined we were going to be doing. Not at all. No, <laughs> I think we were all looking forward to, you know, the Oakland and San Francisco, you know, uh, connection and really doing something very unique. And so this this is this is a challenge and a disappointment. Yeah, you know, it is a disappointment. Um, I, I'm on the board of the uh, California Prostitutes Education Project in Oakland, which is one of the sort of premier HIV testers in the mm -hmm. East Bay. And mm -hmm. we had such a program lined up to shine a light on um, the HIV response, both the challenges and the opportunities for the African-American community, for mm -hmm. marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a, it's a real challenge to have to do that virtually. Do, do you have any thoughts on, on how we can continue to do this and sort of essentially build a legacy of keeping that light shining on the needs of, of, of that community? Well, you know, I think when we start talking about getting to the end of AIDS, in order to get to the end of AIDS, we have to identify all of the communities that are disproportionately impacted. And we have to find ways to get into those communities and connect with them, have them trust us, allow, have them, you know, bring us into the fold so that, you know, we can, when we create new technologies, that we can bring those along and people be trusted to accept them. And so if you, you know, those relationships are so critical. And so it is disappointing that you don't get to showcase some of the work that has been done to create those relationships with those communities. And, and you, you, you talked about new technologies, and that's really where I wanted to, to, mm -hmm. to go next with this. Um, uh, Viv has some fascinating um, uh, research, particularly in long-acting uh, injectable prevention and treatment. Mm -hmm. And uh, today you guys released some interesting new data on pre-exposure prophylaxis with long acting. Um, can you tell us what that was? Well, so the, the data came from the HPTN or HIV Prevention Trials Network 083 study. And this study was designed to uh, compare long acting cabotegavir, which is an integrase inhibitor, uh, to what is the standard of care, uh, oral daily uh, Truvada. And so this study was, was started in 2016 after many years of, of planning. And it was anticipated that this study would go on probably as long as two or more uh, years. But the study was stopped early by a, a DSMB, a Data Safety and Monitoring Committee, because in their first interim uh, review of the data, they, sh they saw a very dramatic difference in the uh, efficacy and the, in the effectiveness of the long-acting cabotegavir in comparison to uh, Truvada. There were three times as many uh, HIV events occurring in the Truvada arm in comparison to the cabotegavir arm. And so that was actually quite dramatic and, uh, and the, the DSMB thought that it was important enough 
uh, convincing enough that this was information that the field needed to see and that individuals that were randomized to the uh, Truvada arm should be offered the opportunity to receive cabotegavir. And so, you know, that that happened just, well, it's now a month, a little over a month ago in mid-May. And, um, you know, it was quite, I mean, we were, we were extremely thrilled uh, with the data because, you know, we, we need more treatment uh, or we need more prevention options. And this study was really particularly important for a lot of reasons. Um, one, it was a large study, 4,600 men who have sex with men and transgendered women. And, uh, but it was particularly important because we made a point from the beginning of enrolling populations most disproportionately impacted. And so that means in the U.S., Black men who have sex with men, particularly young Black men who have sex with men, and globally young uh, men who have sex with men, so you know under 30, even under 25, and then a transgendered women who are disproportionately impacted by HIV. And so the study did a great job of enrolling them with, more, with basically 50% of the U.S. enrollment being in Black MSM. The overall study had about about two-thirds were under 30, uh, and uh, there was 12% transgender women. And so we had a, a really, this will be the largest interventional study of transgendered women. It'll be the largest ever uh, interventional study of Black men who have sex with men. And, and so to show this great efficacy in a study that really does represent the popu population's most impact, it was really the most, uh, you know, most thrilling part. And, and, and an obvious thing to state that with such a high proportion of African-American men who have sex with men, that, that's going to have a huge impact in terms of acceptability um, uh, of, of the data. Um, but, but just to unpack what you've said, um, so, so, so the uh, injectable not only showed non-inferiority, it, it actually showed superiority over a regimen that is generally considered to be, you know, pretty damn effective. That's right. That's right. That's really terrific. So an obvious question then, looking at the approval of Discovy at the end of last year, and of course Discovy is the uh, new oral formulation of tenofovir plus FTC for use in PrEP. The FDA approved that really only for use in men. Um, and I think the language was for people without uteruses. So what is Vive's strategy to make sure that the long-acting injectable can be quickly and readily available for girls and women? Right. So, so, so yes, Discovy was approved uh, to 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 quote the indication specifically for people who, uh, for everyone except those who have receptive vaginal intercourse. Which you know that's that's kind of a mouthful to to, to say that over and over, but ultimately it, it essentially, I mean, cisgender women were were not studied, and and this and thus Discovy is not not indicated for them at this point. The company needs to do some additional work to to try to get there. Um, you know, from for us from the beginning, we intended that we would answer this question with long acting cabotegavir for both transgendered women, uh, men who have sex with men, and uh, cisgender women. And so, in addition to the OA three study, we have a study called the OA four study, which is a study that is 
similarly designed, comparing long-acting cabotegavir to oral Truvada dose daily, both of them double-blind, double-dummy, uh, but this is focused on women in sub-Saharan Africa. And so this is a study that is basically, we'll have 3,200 women randomized one-to-one to either of the arms. So that study, while we conceived that the two studies at around the same time, that study got started a little bit later, um, just really a, a number of challenges with regulatory agencies and just design of the study that meant that that study actually started enrollment roughly a year after the 084 study, and uh, 083 study, sorry. And so we, we don't have as much follow-up with the 084 study. It's not completely enrolled. It still is about 200 women short of full enrollment. And so we don't have that answer yet, but we will, most importantly. And I think that's the critical part. We're not going to be in a situation where we can't answer the question for women because we didn't bother to study them. I, I think that is a really... Uh, important and welcome clarification, Kimberly. So, you know, so kudos to you and your, your R&D team for, for, for doing that. One of the other questions that I know came up would be around um, the interactions with FDA over the uh, gabotegravir injectable um, and, that, um, and that there were issues, I think, at the end of last year over uh, I think some of the manufacturing of the um, uh, of the uh, of the long acting. Where do we stand with that now? So, um, so in addition to looking at cabotegavir as an option for prevention, we are looking at it as an option for treatment in combination with long acting ropivirine, and we filed that in April of 2019. And the expectation was that at the end of last year we would get FDA approval. Unfortunately, we did not get FDA approval because they had some concerns about the manufacturing process and the controls that we have on the manufacturing process. And so we got something called a complete response letter. And so that means basically that we have to we have some additional work to do to reassure uh, the agency with regard to our full uh, manufacturing process and controls. And so we are we're doing that. We plan to refile uh, with the FDA. within a few weeks. And so, we, you know, we hope to get that back on track. And so, you know, there was never an issue with the safety of the product. It was just demonstrating to them, to their satisfaction, that we had full control of the manufacturing process. And that that sort of leads us on to treatment. And VEEF has been at the forefront of uh, exploring uh, dual combination regimens for, for treatment. Do you have any data being presented uh, uh, around your treatment strategies, and particularly a drug very close to my heart, dolutegravir? Um, anything that we should be aware of at AIDS 2020? Uh, there's some information at AIDS 2020. We have some follow-up data from the Tango study. So uh, you may remember that that was a study looking at uh, Devado, which is our combination of dolutegavir and lamivudine, lamivudine, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, it's been around for a very long time. And so we combined dolutegavir and lamivudine into a two-drug regimen called Devado. And, and the Tango study took individuals who are on a TAF-based regimen and randomized them to staying on that regimen versus uh, switching to Devado. And so we presented that data last year and showed that it was it worked extremely well. There were no individuals who had virologic failure on Devado. And so this year, what we're showing is actually a metabolic analysis where you're, we're looking at where there are benefits for individuals who, you know, change from that TAF-based regimen to Devado. And so some of the details will 
it showed that there were improvements in cholesterol, there were improvements in insulin resistance. And so there's a lot more detail there. But that's one of the exciting things uh, to, to share at this meeting, because I do think, you know, you're right, we have led the way when it comes to uh, two drug regimens. And, you know, we want to be able to demonstrate to people that the benefit of two drug regimens is, you know, tangible, that there's not just that you're going from three drugs to two, it's that taking away a drug makes a difference. And if you can get rid of some of the adverse events, particularly in the long term, hopefully that will lead to uh, really just better outcomes overall for people. And that's really where the where the discussion is. Um, in a sense, there's something almost, um, and, and, and you're going to kill me for saying this, something sort of mystical about you know the golden triangle of three drug treatments. You know, you 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 feel, oh, that's you know we can because there's going to be no problem of whack a mole uh, with the virus if we have if we have three drugs. That's that mm -hmm. we're going to be certain of suppression. And and you do hear that from doctors as well. So so how do you you know how do you go about sort of explaining the the balance that you know once you've got someone down to undetectable it's the it's the long term suppression that 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 really matters and how a a dual sort of fits into that well you know i so how we got to three drug regimens being the mantra is sort of you know when you think about it we started out with drug we started out with what did we we used the best things that we had but in comparison to the drugs that we have now they were relatively weak in their potency. And so you did need to combine three of them in order to consistently get suppression. What we have now is better drugs that have better potency, dolutegavir being a perfect example of that. So you don't need three drugs to get the same amount of potency. And so I think if we were to start designing this from the beginning with everything that we'd have now, we probably wouldn't have gotten to three drugs. We would have stopped that too because we would have gotten what we needed with two. And so, you know, when I, when you have to kind of understand the evolution of, you know, HIV treatment and sort of three drugs became the mantra because we, that's when we first demonstrated consistent success when we put three of them together. But again, they were weaker drugs. And so now I think we have to rethink, you know, start with what we've got now and say, how do you build a regimen? You build a regimen with it. You start with one drug that is very, very strong, and then you add a companion drug in order to minimize the risk that you select for resistance. And that's what we've been able to do with our two drug regimens. And, you know, we're, we're happy about the success of it. But I think it, what it has demonstrated to the field now is that, you know, that mantra that it required three drugs is no longer the case. And I think that, you know, other companies, other, you know, arguably competitors have, have caught on to that as well. And now they're looking at modern day potent medications and putting two together instead of three. And so, you know, I think I think that the success we've had with Jaluka and, and Devado and, and now with the long acting two drug regimen, I think is ultimately changing the field. Um, so turning to the future now, how do you how do you see the HIV field Playing out over the next decade or so, um, and, and 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 I suppose the, the sort of balance between the need for research into new, more effective regimens, but but also regimens that that actually meet, uh, are accessed, and are accepted by communities most in need. Well, I think 
I think the long acting regimens are really going to revolutionize HIV treatment. I think people are going to get to a place where the expectation that you have to take a pill every day is going to be sort of old news. We're obviously starting that uh, that evolution with with our long acting regimen. Other companies are following with long acting regimen. So I think the future is to try to improve the convenience of HIV treatment. People want to live their lives normally. They want to they want to be able to travel. They want to be able to do everything that they that, that they could do if they weren't living with HIV and not have to worry about you know carrying a pill with them and potentially the stigma associated with with carrying a pill with them. So I think long acting therapy is the wave of the future. But I also think that we will continue to aggressively look for a cure. Ultimately, that's the goal. We need to get to not just less frequent, not just uh, you know less, more tolerable. Ultimately, we wanna get to a point where individuals who are living with HIV can, can, can actually feel, be able to say that they're cured. And, and of course, on top of that, again, when you start talking about getting to the end of the epidemic, you also have to stem the tide of new infections. Mm. So we've got to improve prevention. So we need a way to cure folks, at least if not a sterilizing cure, a functional cure, so that individuals can be treated with something. And although uh, that <laughs> you may not be able to completely eliminate the virus from their from their body, you can at least contain it in a way that they don't need to take medicines every day. So, you know, I think that's the future. And, and you know, all of the companies are committed to that. I think, you know, we, we sometimes say that our goal is to put ourselves out of business. And we do mean that ultimately, you know, we want to get we want to get to a cure. And, you know, nothing could be more gratifying as a person who was fascinated by HIV from the first time I began to learn about it, who, you know, uh, was an HIV treater for for 20 years and saw all of the difficulties and pain that people living with HIV have experienced. Nothing could be more gratifying than to actually see us get to that day. And uh, uh, an interview with a senior executive from VIF would not be complete. And I, I, I there are thousands of people who truly would kill me if I didn't ask this. Um, uh, what's the future for positive action? The uh, community support program, global community support program that mm -hmm. also uh, launched the groundbreaking Southern, Southern States initiative in the United mm -hmm. States. How do you see that playing into the, the strategy for the next decade? Well, positive action isn't going anywhere. Um, it continues to, to, to be really one of the pillars of Vive Healthcare. And, you know, we, we've recently just actually uh, sort of, re, sort of re, revitalized it with some new leadership, some new people coming uh, to be involved in it, to uh, increase focus on some of the community's most hardest hit, including, you know, young men, men young men who have sex with men, um, women of color, young women uh, all over the world. And so positive action is here to stay. The uh, the efforts are, you know, are, I mean, historic. It's been around for so long. And, you know, you, as you know, uh, having been involved in it very early on, it's done so many things. And so the Global Village, for example, that is a part of the International AIDS Conference, every year positive action is basically a key, key part of that. And so, you know, we are super proud to be associated with Positive Action. And so you can be sure it's not going anywhere. Uh, that's great to hear. 
Well, we're, we're living in some very, very curious times, Kimberly, and I, I, I suppose the first of those curious times is the COVID-19 mm. um, pandemic. Um, as an infectious disease physician, are you surprised at the way in which uh, the American public health system seems to have, well, sort of crumbled in, in handling it? I can say that I'm uh, profoundly disappointed. Um, you know, that, that I can't underscore that enough uh, to see um, to see the numbers that uh, have become infected in the United States, the numbers of individuals that have uh, succumbed to this disease in the United States and around the world, but in particular in the United States where we have really more cases than anywhere else in the world. And actually to have seen the curve start to improve dramatically and now actually be really completely becoming vertical again is terribly disappointing. And so, you know, I, I think some things just were not handled well. I think there was there's not been consistent uh, messaging, which is, you know, that's the first step in any uh, addressing any epidemic. Everyone needs to be, uh, you know, on the same page with regard to how you go about controlling an epidemic. And so I, I, you know, I, I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated. Um, you know, I, I know individuals that have succumbed to this disease, including brilliant researchers uh, and treaters. Uh, so it's, it's just, I mean, it's, it's about as horrible as you can get. And, and I, I wish I could say it was moving in the right direction in the United States, but so far, as Anthony Fauci mentioned uh, just recently, uh, uh, the U.S. is going in the wrong direction. And uh, and he's obviously very disappointed about that as well. How have you managed to continue leading a global R&D organization in the midst of this while, while everyone's been working at home? How has that gone? Technology helps a lot, obviously. Um, you know, I can say that, you know, the 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 company has done a great job of making us be able to stay in touch uh, with each other and 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 have meetings like our meeting now, uh, where we uh, can communicate our plans and 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 have a conversation as on, almost as if we're in the same room. Um, obviously, you know there are a, folk, a lot of folks working from home uh, in the shelter in place, but then there's a whole group of folks um, at Vive and at GSK who aren't sheltering at home. They're actually going into manufacturing facilities and into labs. Uh, and so continuing the work that we do with some social distancing, obviously a little bit of change in protocols, but, um, but you know, really dedicated people that really have been going all along, never stopped. And, you know, and for us, we've just put our head down and, you know, kept at the work. We have prioritized making sure we continue to have continuity in our global clinical supply for, you know, commercial supply for people who are on our medicines, but also clinical supplies for clinical trials, making sure that, you know, we, we backed everything up and, and made sure that there weren't going to be individuals in our trials who couldn't have access to medicines or had any interruptions. You know, we've had some flexibility where individuals can have their visits instead of having to come into the clinic. They have a, a, a visit over the phone mm. uh, or, you know, so so, you know, you've had to be creative. But, uh, you know, I'm happy to say that we've we've really managed to, I think, do a, a pretty remarkable job as uh, in maintaining the continuity of our clinical trials. And then I guess the the other sort of big 
uh, issue, the moment of reckoning, particularly here in the United States. Uh, and I suppose coming from the uh, brutal murder of, of, of George Floyd is the Black Lives uh, Matter movement. And, and I guess it's, you know, ripped off the scab of, of America's original sin, uh, systemic racism. And um, I, I just wondered, you know, in, in, in asking you this, um, here you are, one of the top leaders, global leaders in HIV research and in the pharmaceutical industry. And, and you know, in this environment, what advice would you give to young African-American girls and boys considering a career in industry and considering uh, a career in clinical research? What advice would you have for them? Well, that's a great question. Um, my advice is, one, stick to it. You can, you can do it. Find good mentors. Find people who can, can support you. Um, many of those mentors could be African-Americans who have been successful, um, you know, like me. But they don't have to be there. You know, I've had many mentors in my career who were not uh, who were not black, who were just folks who wanted to see me be successful. So find a good mentor. But I think that, you know, part a big part of doing something about giving these young folks these opportunities is having them see uh, that it is possible and know that, you know, there are people who can be successful in these fields. And so the visibility of, you know, people like myself, but many uh, other folks who've come well before me, who, you know, just just make it clear that it is possible to do this. And, you know, I, I started talking a little bit about my history, but, you know, I, I didn't come from a rich background. I grew up in Detroit. I went to public schools. I worked, studied hard, worked hard, you know, and, you know, didn't, didn't have a silver spoon all in my, you know, didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth. We can do this, but we, we do need to, to have, you know, have that motivation and have that confidence that we can get past these hurdles. You know, what has happened with regard to the Black Lives Matter movement, I think is an important moment, but not just a moment. It has to be a sustained moment in order for it to be a movement where we actually see this change. And in order for that to happen, there has to be a clear, open recognition of the impact of systematic racism. And you know, as long as we continue to deny that it exists or try to minimize it or try to put a Band-Aid over these problems that are massive gaping wounds, we'll, we'll never get there. And so my advice to young folks who are looking to get to move forward and to have careers in medicine and pharmaceuticals is stick to it. Get to your books, focus on that, and look for mentors who can help you uh, to navigate what can be challenging waters. I, you know, there's nothing special about me. I'm not. Uh, I, I was never, uh, a, you know, any more brilliant than than the next uh, young uh, African American woman in my uh, high school. But I, you know, I had a family that helped me to stick to uh, stick to my books and encouraged me. And and like I said, I found great mentors. And so, you know, you, you just have to never give up and be committed. And I hope that we will take this moment to focus on creating more opportunities for young African American uh, men and women, so that you know they can uh, see their lives being valued. Yeah, and and 
looking at that systematically, both across academic institutions and the industry to provide uh, a cadre of mentors. I'm, I'm, I know there are plenty of people who would, who would benefit from that. Absolutely. And that's a commitment that we're making. I mean, you know, we're, we're, the company has sort of stopped in this moment and said, okay, we've been doing some things to try to make sure that we have appropriate representation in the company. Uh, but what more can we do? Because clearly what we're doing is not enough. And so, you know, what can we step up? How can we have more senior uh, leaders that are, uh, that are African-American and there are people of color? How can we make sure that we're seeing more black women in some of those leadership positions? And so, you know, our company is doing it. I'm happy to see many companies are doing it. And, and but again, can't be just a moment, has to be sustained, a long term commitment to making this change. So just finally, um, how have you been doing these last couple of months? How do you stay sane? Hmm. Um, that makes the assumption that I am. Uh, <laughs> <saying>. <laughs> um, you know, it's been a challenging time uh, for so many reasons. Uh, obviously, COVID is emotionally draining. Um, and, and, and from a work standpoint, you know, everything that we had on our plates is still there. And then a tremendous amount of additional came on because of COVID. So work has been crazy. And then, you know, when you just watch the news, which I, I, I'm probably just a news junkie, which is, you know, part of the insanity. But when you watch the news, it's upsetting and the numbers are upsetting. And, and, and you add the Black Lives Matter challenge to that. There's a lot to be um, upset about. But, you know, I, I try to look for what's positive. And, you know, I, you know, when it comes to, again, the, the point that I made about Black Lives Matter is it what can this trigger? How can this trigger us to see things differently? And, and, and we've already seen sort of a change, even when we look in the U.S. at how many people recognize racism, systemic racism as a problem that's gone up dramatically. And so, so I try to look at what are the bright sides of that. And, you know, my, I, I would say I don't have as much of an outlet as I should, but when I can, I try to get out and put my hands in the dirt and garden. And, and, and that's always, you know, a positive because you get to see something tangible come out of that and hopefully something delicious and beautiful come out of that. And so that's my, uh, that's, that's my way of sort of taking my, my mind away from some of the negativity that can be out there. Well, Dr. Smith, I know that you've got a completely full uh, agenda uh, here at AIDS 2020. Uh, Kimberly, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute honor having you here and just wishing you and your colleagues the very best of luck and thank you for everything that you're doing. Well, thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure to be here and, and have a, a fun conversation with you and to talk about some of the exciting work that we're going to be sharing at the International AIDS Conference this year. So thank you so much for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed the show. Our thanks to Dr. Kimberly Smith. Thanks also to our director and producer, Erica Sperra of Newsdoc Media. Thanks also to our production manager, Brian Ragas. 
This episode was recorded during AIDS 2020, and if you are a delegate at that conference, hope you're having a fruitful and productive time. And finally, thanks to you, our listeners and viewers. As always, you can contact us at Shot Arm Podcast through YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can download this and all other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for watching, and don't forget, wear a mask. <laughs>